You're listening to Brave New Words, Starburst Magazine's book podcast named after Starburst Magazine's column, also called Brave New Words. You're listening to us either via the Starburst Magazine's family of podcasts, or you're listening to us via the Wonky Spanner. Hi, Wonky Spanner listeners, or you're listening to us live on FabRadioInternational.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. Hi, Ross. So, let's get straight into it. We're going to be talking about Emma Newman's uh, latest book, which is coming out very soon, called After Atlas. Fabulous. Which is, which is a novel and not like a companion to an atlas. Good. Coming up next, a jingle. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. What a lovely jingle. That was fabulous. So, and you should buy Starburst magazine, obviously. That's what your jingle, jingle always tells you. Or you should be listening to FabRadioInternational.com. So, let's. We, we talked about Planet Fall on the old show. Okay. Uh, the old show was uh, the, the bookworm, and the previous book was called Planet Fall. Planet Fall is a very depressing story about a bunch of people who leave the Earth. Right. The Earth is in a bad state uh, because they've detected alien life elsewhere and they kind of slightly cult-like have, have flown to this other world and it's one story of one person on what's happened to the Atlas, the, the, the spaceship, the Atlas. Right, okay. Um, Plantfall is a very solemn book. It's very much, I, I described it as a weep of a book. Um you know, there's certain you can read into certain things with the authors of emotions at the time, but it's a very sombre novel with a very interesting and powerful ending that people bicker about, which is always good because mm. you want people to go. Hmm, the ending has made me think about things. Stories um, should start bar fights. Yes, actually, truth or beauty, beauty or truth, fight. Uh, I've never had that response in an interview as yet, but one of these days I probably will. Uh, so after that this is sort of a sequel if you're expecting more explanation to the ending of Planet Fall nope uh, this will not satisfy the ending of Planet Fall it's also an equal in the sense that if you've not read Af- uh, Planet Fall it doesn't matter you can read after that this and you'll be fine okay uh, it's dilu- it's the same world uh, same world different story different different stuff so in Planet Fall they are on the alien world in the ship of the Atlas this is what happens to Earth after Atlas after Atlas left after Atlas is left so the right. setup is this uh, mankind's tinkering with the planet uh, planet Earth has caused the planet to pretty much fall apart uh, resources are incredibly scarce Um People are kind of refusing to live more simpler lives. Um, governments, co- government, and corporations are pretty much the same thing now. They're called GovCorps. Okay. Um, so everything is kind of business-led. There are different factions and different nations. If you see what I mean. So the nations are very the, the kind of the lines between nations are along a corporate line, but there's still barriers. We don't have one Earth here. We haven't. Yeah. We haven't. We haven't g- gotten together. Over, over ecological disaster and the world basically ending um, to, to form one nation and what we've instead got is lots of 
kind of governments that work very well together, right? But still bicker over fundamental differences in attitude and yeah. approach. Um, so that's kind of the and the technology is such that AIs are a thing, three um, D printers, food printers are a thing. They'll just print your food. Three D printers generally exist, and most things can be made, providing you've got enough resources. And it's cheaper to print stuff. It's basically it's cheaper to print food than to grow it for most places. So food, right, okay. so, so having having a fresh bag of carrots is a luxury thing. Okay. So uh, after that, this focuses on a character called Carlos Marino, uh, who was only a baby when Atlas left the Earth. Uh, what basically happened is his mum joined the Atlas crew and left and left him and his dad. It's a spaceship, so they left. She left everything behind, including her son and the father of her son. Um, the dad, basically, as soon as this happens, dad pretty much falls apart, can't really cope. Um, the son is just a little boy at the time, can't really like fend for himself, doesn't really know how to, isn't being looked after. The father then joins an organisation called Circle, who are the people who are responsible for the Atlas existing in the first place. So they're a, they're a cult. Yeah. They believe in this alien life form and all the rest of it, and they also believe in a similar life. So off they go to this this, this kind of cult. This isn't presented to us at the start of the story. When we start the story, um, Detective Carlos Moreno is uh, an older man who is a brilliant detective. And his job is he is a detective. As the story unfolds, what we learn is this. He's a brilliant detective because he's gone through a process known as hothousing. So what's happened is he was an orphan, right. or he was abandoned. He was pretty much sold into slavery, into corporate legal slavery. Yeah? Yep. Legal slavery, smart enough to be put through a specific process. Okay. And it's sort of like a mental torture, it's the best way to describe it, where he has to work very hard to absorb all the information right. that he has. Then he was sold to what's left of the British government. So when they have when they absolutely have to know why that person was murdered, they have this brilliant detective because this person has had all of the stuff put into their, their skull. Okay. And because they've been mortgaged, because they're effectively a slave, they don't yeah, own their they're own. an asset. They're an asset. Yeah. So they can't go. No, I'm. I'm going to bust out and break the rules. They can't do that because if they do that, then it's they add years to their contract, and the more years they they add to the contract, obviously, the longer they are owned by the state. That they are also so they're owned by the state. The other thing with this particular character is he's, uh, he's got an AI built into his skull. Right. And the AI is pretty cool. Talks to him, looks after him, uh, looks after him, says things like, you appear to be stressed. You may want to stop. Uh, feel it's clippy. It's sort of clippy. <laughs> oh, God. There's a nicer version of clippy. Oh, good. But, so, yeah, and it's, on the one hand, you sit there and you go, that's really cool. That's a really cool thing to have. You've got this kind of AI that looks after you and makes sure that you eat properly and doesn't hurt yourself. And okay, it's there because it's been installed by the government because you're an asset. 
But you know, there's always a set of eyes looking after you, and then you go, "Well, hang on, that's really sinister as well because it's a tool of control." You know, you don't your your thoughts are never really your own because they're always being recorded. Yeah. So the problem, of course, that Carlos has is Carlos is part of a famous cult. His mum famously ran off to space. You said his mother was in this cult. Yeah. So one problem is because his mum is in this cult or was. You know, went off to space and abandoned her son. That's news, right? And it's news in a kind of cracked article, kind of clickbaity sort of way. Okay, you know, these hero people who went off to space to to find a brave new world um, abandoned their children. How dare they? Sort of thing. So he's been the subject of documentaries and TV dramas and internet memes and this sort of stuff his entire life. Right. So he's got tools set up. To avoid journalists. He keeps the heck away from journalists. Um, so he keeps the heck away from journalists as much as he can. And this all comes to a head, however, when two things happen. Thing one, uh, there is a space capsule, like a time capsule, right. that the crew of the Atlas left the people of Earth before they left themselves. Yeah, It's been buried, people are speculating what's inside the capsule... Most people are reasonably convinced that inside this capsule there's all the technology it took to make the Atlas work so they can make another one. Right. Or maybe it's just letters. Maybe it's alien technology. Maybe it's something else cool. No one knows. So obviously people want to know what Carlos thinks about the capsule and Carlos doesn't care. Yeah. Carlos was abandoned by his family. He, he doesn't want to talk about it. The focus of the story, however, is the leader of the circle, Alejandro Caceres, has been found dead. Right. And obviously, because he's a major figure of political importance, you're going to have to get a detective on that to find out who murdered him. And the British government have a perfect asset for that. It's Carlos. He was a member of the circle. Members of the circle will talk to him. Yeah. And, And they don't care about his emotions. They don't care about him as a person. Conflict there? Well, he's got no loyalty to the cult, I assume. He's got no loyalty to the cult. He's owned by the government. Yeah. He's 100% loyal to the government because he has to be. He's not allowed not to be. So off he pops to investigate it. Because if he says no, that's longer on his contract. Yep. And then, of course, there's other government agencies that want this investigated in a very specific way because they say, oh, there's an international organisation and he crosses a number of boundaries. Carlos has his work cut out. So you appear to be crossing some boundaries. Only appears to be crossing some boundaries. So what Emma Newman has created for us is a procedural detective novel, right? In a really cool sci-fi setting about someone who does not have their freedom. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because you know who are the real villains here? Well, the state, maybe sort of. Certainly, it's not doing him any favours. Um, did I like the book? Yes. Is it any good? Yes. Is it as sad as Pirate Absolutely not. It's a, it's not a romp. Certainly, there's no there's no kind of Blade Runner style fights with androids on top of rooftops. But the rest of that kind of Blade Runner world gone falling apart. Philip K. Dick tone. Yeah, that's there. That's definitely there. It's there in spades. Is cool. it any good? Yes. 
Um, is it different from Planet Pool? It's different enough, it's a strong enough novel, it's a strong enough read. If the only thing you have read of Eminem is Split Worlds, um, prepare for a culture bump. If you see what I mean, because okay. Eminem and writing Split Worlds, which is kind of fairies, steampunk fantasy, fun. This sounds different. Uh, and her dystopian sci-fi, different approach, different. It's like she's bringing different emotions to the fore as well. Uh, so we've got all of that going on. Um, so yeah, it's planned for. I'll be out really soon. I met Emma at Edge Lit. She was very nice. Um, I haven't read this. I shall have to pick it up. She's lovely. Um, she's also known for Tea and Jeopardy. Uh, she won an Alfie recently. Uh, presented to her personally by George R. R. Martin, which is the award that you win when you don't win a Hugo because of nonsense has stopped you from winning a Hugo. Essentially, the Alfred Bester Awards, named after the Psychop from Babylon 5. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I don't write in, though, if you want to, it's at Radio Bookworm. Uh, obviously, Alfred Bester was a science fiction writer who wrote The Demolished Man, and one of the first Hugo Awards was for The Dem- Was it for The Demolished Man? Might have not been The Demolished Man. For one of his novels. He's written a lot. They're, yes. they're all very good. So, yeah, he, he won a Hugo Award for one of his works, which is why they called the Alfies. Not after Walter Koenig's character. Who was named after Alfred Who was named after Alfred Bester, the person who won the Hugo Award. But canonically, as well. It's in the books. Oh, is he actually? Is the character the actually... is canonically named after Alfred Bester. It's in the Psycho novels. Well, um, the Stars My Destination is one of my favourite novels. Uh, is Planetfall as. So, not Planetfall. Is After Atlas as good as The Stars My Destination? <laughs> no. Um, is it a good book, though? It is a good book. I have a prediction that this will be a Clark nominee next year for 2016. 2017, so. even. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced it will be. I've never seen a more kind of Clark Award pitch. It's a very strong novel. It's a very well-written novel. I really liked it. I strongly and firmly recommend it. So, uh, and coming up next, a jingle. Across the world, 24 hours a day. So yes, so After Atlas is definitely... I mean, I wouldn't say it's a cyberpunk novel. Okay. Um, but it's got that cyberpunk aesthetic. I would say it's actually closer in feel to do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep and that kind of Philip K. Dick aesthetic where mankind has ruined everything and is still carrying on. Uh, without spoiling it, especially towards the end, you get a general feeling that, you know, at the end is all entirely man-made. And there's this interesting sort of sci-fi approach now that there's... It's a, I think it's an internet meme right now, which is, you know, if you're below the age of 60, the future that was promised to you wasn't jetpacks and space travel, but a world run by corporations and a, you know, a dystopian future where everything was tightly controlled by machines and you didn't really have any freedom and all the resources were running out. It'd be awful to live in a world like that. 
I am slightly reminded of Red Dwarf I mean, from the books, if nothing else. I mean, okay, not a machine-led future, but still the Jupiter Minor Corpor- Corporation, the bureaucracy, the all of that future is has been around for quite a while. Well, Dune Neal says that Blade Runner is one of his inspirations. Well, okay. For, for, for Red Dwarf. And you can see that in the sense that uh, the thing I love about Red Dwarf, he said again, completely off the topic, but it's a strong sci-fi trope, mm. is the world that Lister lives in, everything... He comes from a version of Earth where the resources are running out. So much so that they've had to build huge, massive spaceships to go out to get more resources, to suck up more resources. Uh, yeah, that's that's his job. Jupiter Mining Corporation. Uh, Corporation is yes, the JMC. GMC, Jupiter Mining Corporation. It's flying through over this big thing and sucking up resources and it's eating up hydrogen and it's trying to get more resources. And but that resource will run out as well. Yeah, so I mean, and it's kind of it's a world at the edge of I think in the books he's got the, they've got the weird little jumping cars and this sort of thing. Yes. Uh, I don't remember the names of them. Yeah, hopping taxis. The hopping taxis, and it's because there's there's so much lack of space yeah. that you can't find a parking space, so you stack your car on someone else's. Whether they want you to or not. Whether they want you to or not. So it's like, yeah, and it's like kind of like, you know, everything, there is scarcity, it's not a poor scarcity world. And Red Dwarf is never a poor scarcity world. They never get that jump to Utopia. Yeah, I mean, they still have, I don't think they've ever, even today, even they've never quite explained the premise of how on earth Dave Lister got drunk one night and ended up three planets away with that set, with that ethos in mind of there's not enough space, there's not enough room on the ship. But <laughs> it's, it's not that there's not enough room on the ship. I think it's quite easy to do because it's a case of there'll be adverts everywhere saying, come to Jupiter, because no one wants to live in Jupiter. Come on, there's nothing there. So no one will want to go anywhere near the long distancing. But if you're drunk, it's like signing up for the army. But whereas the army won't let you sign up drunk and have a series of protocols and all the rest of it, I would imagine the Jupiter Mining Corporation. If you've accidentally, if you accidentally click on the wrong thing, do you want to subscribe to this newsletter? Yes. Do you want to go into space and join the Jupiter Mining Corporation? Oh, I better one click that one. Sort of thing. I, I suspect. Well, he, he goes through the process in the, in the first of the books of this is the application process to become a, the lo, you know third level technician on a JMC ship, which is clearly not how he got to. I can't remember which planet he, he wakes up on to start with. Is it Mars? Is it one of the Saturn's moons? I think it's, I think it's Io. Yeah, Io. He yeah, we, he starts off there. It's not clear exactly how he got from Liverpool to there, but nevertheless, he clearly wasn't a member of the JMC when he started. But they do go through the, the, the whole you know, bureaucracy form, which forms Red Dwarf's sort of humour of, you know, what qualifications do you have? I've got a, you know, A-level in art. That doesn't really count because I failed. <laughs> but is that, is that sort of... I mean, towards towards the the bulk of the novel, when we leave Earth properly, the the world itself is poor scarcity because everything is dead, Dave. Dave, everything is dead. There's the simulants, which are the last few things left of humanity, which are the rampaging murder robots. Because everything in Red Dwarf is ultimately created by man. Yeah, it's no aliens, and there's the Gulfs and all the rest of it. So there's bits left of humanity's kind of stain. But it's not a world that's thriving of life. He's literally the last man at the edge of nowhere. It's it, he's living in sp- space, Serbian. To be honest, 
you know, that kind of, yeah, I think at some point, if you've moved out of your hometown, I think at some point in everyone's life you find yourself living in what is not a very nice part of town where, you, you know, there isn't really anything for you and you're just there for a little while until you can move on. And that's where he ends up with, but to the end, worst possible point. You know, yeah. That's the kind of end. And we've completely moved away from the concept of, we've gone into a sort of entirely different sort of dystopia. Yes. Um, and, and headed in that kind of and the thing is it's interesting because there's an old it's an old gag and it's an old line which is someone's dystopia every dystopia is someone's utopia okay I think that's nonsense after Atlas getting back to after Atlas for a moment the dystopia that they live in is no one's utopia there is no one living it up okay everything is running out the time the time on humanity is running out Sort of thing, and even though this is it's a police procedural story that kind of just bimbles on, everyone's still running out of time. And again, I would say that Red Dwarf is no one's utopia. No, there's there's opportunities for for a couple of people to make something of themselves with the technology they've got, but generally, no, it's not that kind of world. Uh, I don't think it needs to be. I don't think you actually have to have. I think if you're looking for conflict. You should ask yourself who is thriving in this world. After that, listen to corporations um, or corporate heads in in Red Dwarf. It's a simulance mostly. Well, for the most part, for the for the moment, because they're running out of prey. Yeah, that's true. So it's great <laughs> fun right now, but again, eventually it will run out. Um, and again, in in as a science. You get this idea. If it's a general science fiction concept, I think science fiction is most interesting when we go to those extreme ends. And I go to those extreme ends. I always found it fascinating that Gene Roddenberry created two, essentially created two TV series, but we only ever really know one. Right. So we know we, do, we know Star Trek, but we don't really know Genesis Earth. And Genesis Earth, of course, is the one where mankind had wiped itself out pretty much and just starting itself again. You get the post-apocalyptic fiction where humanity has mostly wiped itself out or there is a zombie plague and there is the fighting for resources, there is the barricading of doors. I'm not sure where I'm going with that thought. Scarcity societies. Yes. And scarcity societies have inherent conflict because scarcity. There's, there's, there's no resources. So yeah. people get pissed off and fight each other. Whereas um, so one of the problems I have with Star Trek, I love Star Trek, yeah. completely adore it but one of the problems I have with Star Trek is I don't understand most Federation citizens they don't show many Federation citizens I mean, if you watch the average episode of Star Trek you would get the impression that humanity is a pseudo military society because you don't you get that many Starfleet. you don't get yeah because you all you encounter is Starfleet not the civilians so what is everyone doing with their time because they've got they don't have infinite energy but they have a lot of energy yeah I mean I've, I've been re- reading around it a lot recently and there's a number of people who, you, the, the complaints are well you have replicators and you have hollow suites and that should solve most of your problems and you, in many cases this should make many of your the problems that they have in certain episodes completely obsolete um, the the premise for Voyager was we're, you know, we're going to throw these people out to a far from um, area of space where they're not going to encounter people from their own civilization a lot they're going to run out of resources you know the that's first not, that's not the show that the, that's that... not the show that happened no that's where Battlestar Galactica did it right but 
in premise principle, the first thing they say they claim to be running out of is coffee, of all things. Not, you know, torpedoes or shuttlecraft, of which they seem to have an infinite supply on that show. But, there okay, there are many reasons to complain about Star Trek Voyager. Um, they, they are. But, uh, and in fairness, it, I've not read many of the Star Trek Voyager no- novels. Um, I haven't. My focus recently, I've been looking at some of the Deep Space Nine stuff, where there are in, still entire episodes devoted around well, we swapped this for this. Where, sorry, there's a last series Deep Space Nine episode called Treachery, Faith, and the Great River, and it's basically we need this, therefore we're trading this component with this other starship for this other thing, and the Ferengi Starfleet officer Nog trades lots of things, including the captain's desk, and the entire plot of the episode is we need to get this the thing back, including the captain's desk, before he notices that it's gone, and you're thinking. But we have replicators. Why can't we just make him an exactly identical desk from the replicator? Why did, for that matter, why did we need to take away the original? Because unless you understand economics to a level that you can be creative with them, economics is boring. Yes, but you have the Ferengi. You do have references every so often to people buying things. In trade place, is but... exciting. Trade is completely exciting. Yes, the, the uh, haggling. The haggling is exciting. Uh, the Lime Ship Traders is about traders. It's one of Bob and Hobbs' most popular works. They're very pop, you know, it's Bing Town and trading. Trading is exciting. Going to a place to buy a magic sword is exciting. Mag- uh, gold coins and coin pieces are exciting. It's a trope of tabletop gaming and, you know, D&D in general. That's exciting. What's not exciting is examining the gold standard of the replicator. What sort of energy level is required? That's boring as all hell. I don't care. Um, all they need to—I think they do that in the episode of Noggin it where they go, um, they, they turn around and they go, right. Well, we can't replicate an entire captain's desk. It would cost too much energy. It'd be obvious. Um, and the, clearly, energy is rationed the favour when you get from Earth. Yeah, you, there has to be a point to the Ferengi among other things, but. Well, I, 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 as I understand it, most races don't have access to all of that technology, and it's not something that the Federation hands out like candy, because you wouldn't. It's not made clear. They don't feature that. Well, they don't it, feature that part of the society much. It's there is a there is a nice point where they mention that the currency is gold pressed latinum, not because gold is valuable, but because the latinum is in its its liquid state, so it has to be contained in something, and it can't be replicated. Yeah, and the for... latinum yeah can't be replicated, but the gold is. Otherwise, completely worthless. It's just shiny um, wrapping. It's, it's a shit. It's a stable or, or non-reactive material to, yeah. put you, to put your exotic material in. I like that. As, as a hero, you know your your base standard is exotic material, and rather than doing the thing of saying this represents as exotic material, it's like no, 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 no. Because technology means we can make almost all exotic all, all materials we need. The rare ones we want. So you can then, presumably what you do with gold press latinum is you bung it in a replicator uh, when you've got enough of it and you say, replicator, make me a gold jar of latinum. And you have now a beaker of latinum, which you then use whatever latinum's for. Um, the Crin novels, D&D, okay. he said spirit steering it back to books, had <laughs> this glorious uh, idea. <laughs> Shocking, I know had this glorious trope where one of the things in the typical fantasy trope is that the gold piece is you, you come into it. Yes. And it's steel on Crin. 
Right. Because iron is for some reason rare, despite it being an incredibly common element. I think the gods got annoyed at the concept of steel and made it or turned it all into milk or something stupid. So the gods, the gods, god, a big wizard did it and ran away. Essentially, they got rid of all those iron metaphors and iron named people. Well, no, they're not that. They just got rid of all the iron. Yeah. Um, so what was left is what was left, or the processing of the metal became a, a, a thing. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so it's steel pieces, right? And literally, it, it's like um, twelve steel pieces for a sword, and it's ten steel pieces will make you your sword, and two to the blacksmith, who will melt down your steel to make you your sword. Oh, right. So it's literally your you know, your coins become the weapon itself. I can do. Okay, sort of thing. Presumably, you give twelve steel pieces to a blacksmith who's already made several swords, and he gives you a sword, but. Part of it, you you know what the material costs are because they're in your hand. Yeah. Um, the D and D did that again with um, the Dachshund. The Dachshund novel's great, actually, because it's the the world is the the idea is that magic has drained the earth of all resources. Getting back to a point of a dying earth. Uh, I noticed that we've avoided advancements because neither of us are that familiar with advance. But anyway, um, so in the Dachshund novels, magic drains power and life force from the planet. Uh, which is called Afas, if memory serves. You can write in if I'm wrong, radio book, at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. So most of the weapons and most of the armour are made out of leather and bone. Right. Uh, which, of course, means that if you have a metal sword, you win. Yes. Wooden club versus piece of metal. Bop. Uh, immediate winning. I always kind of, I always like that kind of, that exotic currency, that exotic economics sort of thing. But again, economics is boring unless you can make it interesting. Yeah. Um, my my concern with Star Trek Citizens and why you... I mean, there's a... The interview we've got on this sh- show we talk about the Star Trek in- Engineers series. But, oh, lovely. But still, that's a specific showcase for specific cool things rather than, you know, a, a typical life in the day. What I think most Star Trek Citizens do is this. They watch Netflix. There is, yeah, there's an implication in some of the episodes that basically you do, you, you think towards the future or you try and do something you know, slightly more productive. Uh, I'm not quite sure what, I don't know how you classify it. I mean, the things we do see in Star Trek are this person loves cooking, runs a, a Creole uh, restaurant um, in, in New Orleans. Lovely thing for them to do, I'm sure. I don't know exactly how they get paid for their meals. I assume it's along the lines of he just enjoys cooking, he enjoys the currency. Somebody else we see, we see the I think brother of Captain Picard runs a, a vineyard, you know, spends all his time making wine for people. I, I, I think, I, yeah, I, I, this is the problem of Ian M. Banks's culture novels as well, is that we don't get a culture novel where it's you know where it's about all the domestic stuff that's happening, um, we just don't, and the reason that is is because that dull, um, yeah, yeah, with the culture novels, yeah. What you've got is special circumstances. So, if you live in the culture, you live in paradise because they have their poor scarcity society. Um, they genetically engineered their humans to the point where you can be anything you fancy. Um, you've actually got stuff built into your body that means if you get into a fight, you can pretty much get out of the fight, sort of thing. You can survive. There's typically you have a little robot friend whizzing around. Who, who is a knife missile so it's tiny little intelligence that can go zoomf and just wipe things out 
Um, and you can pretty much chill. And human beings just dick around. They mostly spend their time having sex um, and doing ridiculous projects. There's one person who... There's one spaceship with volunteers, and the spaceship is so bored. It's the focus of one of the novels is that people who put themselves into suspended animation, because you can do this thing where you go, yeah, I'm going to quit the next... next hundred years are going to be boring. Let's um, put me in suspended animation for a hundred years. Yep. Um, so you can skip a hundred, because who cares if you've been genetically engineered to be immortal? Uh, it's like, okay, well, you know, space Brexit has happened. That's going to be rubbish. I'll just skip the next hundred years until like get over themselves. So off you go. And then rather than just being put in suspended animation, there's a spaceship that specialises in reenactment dioramas of famous historical battle scenes. Okay. So you get put into a special suspended animation suit where you're dressed as a Napoleonic soldier and then you get to be a corpse on a battlefield for a hundred years. Right. And then brought back. You're in suspended animation, but your your uniform is keeping you alive and you're just part of an artwork. Right. Okay. And that's... uh, the, The key thing of the culture is that the minds, the artificial intelligences, um, spend... 99.9% 99.9% of their time in infinite fun space, essentially playing World of Warcraft with themselves, right. with other minds. Uh, and that tiny 1% is what they spend running the real world, Yeah. so they can continue to play World of Warcraft, or you know, it, as they call it, infinite fun space. So it's a great setup. But we never, get a, we never get a culture story about a guy who is so bored that he decides it would be really fun to spend 200 years... As you know, the Colossus of Rhodes left testicle. That doesn't happen. No, you know that's certainly something that definitely happens in that world. Just it's not a story. Yeah, I'm thinking of the movie. Is it Gamer? It's um, Michael C. Hall, the guy who played Dexter, and yeah. um, I forget who else is in it. But yeah, it's a similar sort of setup. You can sort of why. You sort of loan your if you're in order to make money, you sort of loan out your body to somebody else who will play you as a video game and can use your body for other things. And the the protagonist is being used in a war simulation where there and are. And we're back current, to Philip K. Dick. Cause yes, it's one of his old ideas of the of uh, I believe it's one of the ways you can travel as well. Is it he, he? I can't remember the story, but it's essentially you um, you want to say you want to be in New York. And you're in London. Uh, You want to be in New York, you're in London. Rather than flying, you phone your consciousness down to someone else's body. They rent their body out. Yeah. And you can wander around in their body for a few, you know, for a few, to do your business trip. And then you you dial yourself back down, and the personality that's under there is no longer suppressed. Yes. And there's a contract that says, you know, this person is allergic to tomatoes, don't eat any tomatoes, and obviously, you know, they... And the, the, the thing I always like about that is, I seem to recall the story starts with the guy having, with someone having suppressed their consciousness so a fitness trainer can take over. Right. And the fitness trainer spends two hours doing all the boring physical jerks. Okay, uh, and then and then they unsuppress themselves, and the fitness trainer goes back to his super fit body. But I just love the idea of going. I actually can't be bothered. I'd rather be nothing. I'd rather be unconscious than than go to the gym. Yeah. So someone goes to the gym 
for you in your body. Yeah, I was thinking that would be... Yeah, you'd pay someone to wire you in that way, but... Yeah. But, yeah, I kind of... Yeah, again, because Philip K. Dick always plays with identity and the concept of identity until you went completely crazy and then it was spirituality as identity. But, yes, we've gotten really far off the topic. Let's do an author interview. We should. Sounds like a good plan. Paul Tremblay, welcome to Brave New Words. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. What can you tell us about A Head Full of Ghosts? Ah, geez. So, A Head Full of Ghosts. Uh, when I'm being obnoxious, which is most of the time, uh, I guess I describe it as my postmodern secular exorcism novel. And how would I sell it to my grandmother? <laughs> uh, oh, boy. I've never been asked that question before. Uh, well, it, it, the story opens with uh, uh, Meredith Barrett is being interviewed by a best-selling author. When Meredith was eight years old, her older sister Marjorie was either going through a psychotic break because of schizophrenia or, you know, maybe something supernatural was going on. Um, and sort of, I guess, the hook is that at, at one point, the family decides to bring in a reality TV show to help pay the bills. Um, and the reality TV show sort of documents the, uh, the attempted exorcism. And as you can imagine, things don't go well. <laughs> Why do we keep telling stories about exorcism? Yeah, um, that, that's sort of, um, that's, I, I, I think that was sort of my entry into the book. Uh, I, I, in uh, February of 2013, I was actually 100 pages into a different novel, and, and um, I was sort of stalled. And I sort of just stumbled uh, across a, a book of essays on the, the, the film The Exorcist. Um, and while I was reading the essays, and these essays were really wonderful pieces about the politics of the movie, um, and I don't know, I sort of put the book down. It sort of occurred to me, it's like, geez, there's certainly been a ton of Hollywood reimaginings and rehashings of The Exorcist, but there really haven't been very many possession or exorcism books, at least not within the last 10 years. You know, there's been tons of zombie, vampire, werewolf novels, but no exorcism novels. So I asked myself, how would I write an exorcism novel? How would I sort of update it for our 21st century? Um, and my starting point was I wanted to make it come from a place as skeptical as possible. Um, and secondly, I wanted to have all the intrusions of, of, um, of reality TV, social media, um, within the book, there are three large chapters where a blogger actually breaks down the action in both, uh, in the reality TV show and sort of what's happening in the, in the memory of Mary as well. And to me, I thought that was just a wonderful way to really sort of amp up the ambiguity and play, uh, the whole time throughout the novel is something supernatural going on or is you know, is it not supernatural? Are we living in the golden age of genre writing? No, I, I mean, it's hard to sort of uh, quantify, you know, difficulty, but I, I think definitely not. I think we are living in a time that's rife with opportunity to write horror stories. Um, for instance, uh, uh, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, which came out in June in uh, the UK, there's a, a teen goes missing, and actually, you, you know, I, I think most people assume that, oh, because of cell phones and Snapchat and Twitter, it'd be easier to find the teen. But I made sure to make all of those pieces make it more difficult to find out what actually happened. You know, I think, you know, there's a real anxiety there, you know, due to social media about how it, how we might be, uh, how we're getting more alienated from each other instead of closer. So I think that's just a wonderful anxiety to mine. I embrace it in all my books. Sure. So uh, Focus Features has optioned it. Um, there are two production teams. Allegiance, the Allegiance Theater is one, and uh, Team Downey, 
is the other production company. That's Robert Downey Jr.'s production company. Um, and they are in, they're currently in the screenwriting uh, phase. The two screenwriters are named uh, Ben, ben Davis-Collins and Luke Piotrowski. Um, very nice guys. They keep me updated. And from what I last heard, uh, they, they turned in a first draft that everybody liked. You know, they're just going to tweak it a little bit. So they're working on the second draft. Can you tell us about the head full of ghosts movie? Um, I, uh, yeah, I think it's disappearance of devil's rock. I feel is a little bit more straightforward. I feel like there's a lot more narrative pyrotechnics going on <laughs> in a head full of ghosts. Um, but at the same time, I think both novels fit together thematically. I think both novels use, well, let me put it this way. I think in both novels, what actually happens in reality is the most horrific aspects of the book. And I hope that the use of the, the ambiguity or, or the possible supernatural element is what lingers in the minds of readers afterward. What can you tell us about your next big project? Uh, I have just started a, uh, I guess, the next novel. Uh, I have only like 50 pages in. I uh, hope to have it done by next summer, which would mean that, that hopefully it would be published uh, 20, uh, summer of 2018. I guess, all I, can, I guess I'll say it'll be a... It's a twist on, you know, maybe supernatural twist on the home invasion story. Why are we so fascinated with horror? The most important questions of art, literature, film, to me are, you know, uh, once, there's, once there's sort of this reveal of the truth. And to me, I think the best horror stories are about this reveal of a truth. And a horror story, it's a terrible truth. You know, it could be individual, societal, universal. Um, and my favorite horror stories after there's happened after the reveal. So there's been this terrible reveal. And then the stories ask, what, ask the characters, what are you going to do now? Uh, what decisions are you going to make? Do you know what the consequences are? How do you live through this? How does anybody live through this? And to me, when horror is done well, I think it can get at those difficult questions, um, you know, just some really brilliant, interesting ways. What writers are exciting you at the moment? I, I got an early read of Laird Barron's short story collection, um, Swift to Chase, that's coming out, I think, in a month or two, and I had the honor of writing an introduction, so I would highly recommend that when it comes out. There's also uh, John Langan's The Fisherman, which is sort of a you know, big, sprawling, Stephen King sort of epic type of novel that just came out this summer that's, that's very good as well. Um, yeah, I would, st- I would stick with those two recommendations. And after this? <laughs> well, right now I'm just sort of struggling to get back into the swing of things as a uh, as a high school math teacher, you know, uh, just getting back into the school set schedule. So right now I'm just trying to survive. Uh, oh, but otherwise, after this, I'm going to take my relatively new dog. We've had her for four months for a walk. Would you say your work is mostly American, or does it have a broader international appeal? I I, I think it maybe. How, how about both? As I as I stammer through that answer. Uh, I would hope it's both. I think certainly the setting, both novels are, are, are set in New England. And um, apart from me living in New England, I think that's a little bit purposeful as well, since so many sort of you know, famous horror stories and, and, and horror writers from Stephen King to H.P. Lovecraft you know, have obviously used New England and sort of its wonderful puritanical background you know, as the setting. So I hope even readers from other countries, that, that setting part will be a little bit familiar um, I would say I think my strength as a writer is characters. So uh, I, I hope that how I create and build characters um, has a little bit more universality to it as opposed to the actual New England setting. Why are mental health issues such a focus of this book? 
Well, I mean, it was, I had to have one of the main reasons and it's actually addressed in the book is, you know, coming from a skeptic's point of view, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that for hundreds of years, you know, the Catholic church in particular have conflated, um, the supposed symptoms of being possessed by a demon, uh, con- conflated the symptoms of mental health with actually being possessed by a demon. Um, you know, as someone who doesn't believe that, that people can actually be possessed by these things called demons, you know, I really wanted to sort of, you know, take that head on in the book. Um, what is it about the horror genre that inclines them to being more rational, or at least rationalist? Uh, it's, you know, having met and, and being friends with, you know, so many people who are fans of horror, I, I feel like I cannot paint everybody sort of in a broad brush, but there certainly is, um, or there certainly are many people who I, I feel like are sort of card-carrying rational skeptics, at least by day. And then when I wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark in my room, I, I'm, I feel less rational. Is the genre publishing industry as diverse as it thinks it is? Um, no, it's not. And I think you can see that being played out certainly with the Hugo Awards. I don't know if you're aware of um, sort of the, the battle over the science fiction Hugo Awards that's been going on, but there's been a, a clear sort of cultural battle between you know, the alt-right uh, led by Vox Day trying to you know, take over those awards. Um, so no, there's, particularly within science fiction fantasy, and I, I think in horror as well, I shouldn't exclude horror, um, there are st- still factions that you know, so yearn for... I don't know, I'm sort of trying to be nice about it, but you're in for tales that are basically just about, you know, straight white men and, and whatnot. Now, I, I remain hopeful about, you know, speculative fiction in general because there are so many, you know, brilliantly talented authors putting out uh, these stories that are, I think, taking the genre forward, uh, both, you know, socially, politically, but also just as story itself and, and doing some amazing st- work. If you got to rescue one thing... So it would survive until the end of the sun itself, and that was you know art, music, whatever. What would that be? Oh, jeez, I, I I am first and foremost uh, a music fan. I'm a frustrated slash failed musician who wanted to be you know in a punk or metal band as a guitar player. Who and I eventually figured out I was a a better writer than musician. So you know I think I would choose music because uh, music is such a big part of my life, and uh, so many of my stories if not the titles, but even bits of the stories themselves are actually inspired by music. A Head Full of Ghosts, for example, uh, comes, the title itself really comes from a bad religion song called My Head is Full of Ghosts. You know, the band graciously gave me permission to quote from them in the epigraph as well. So, yeah, I I don't think I'd be able to survive, uh, to live happily without music. And if you had to pick one specific piece of music? Oh, jeez. One specific, can I choose one band? Is that all right? (laughs) Uh, I guess I would go with Huskadu slash Bob Mould. What piece of advice would you have for the teenage version of yourself? Maybe learn to spell better. <laughs> but luckily, I guess the older me has spell check. Um, I, I think it would just be encouragement that you can do it. You know, uh, like for most writers, so so much of your life is, uh, or so much of your writing life is battling the ego, is dealing with doubt. You know, and sometimes the ego runs like crazy. You know can be, you know, um, you know, you think you're the greatest type of thing, but more times than not, you're just battling self-doubt, which at some time can be crippling. So I would start at my earliest age possible just to remind myself, hey, you know, it's okay. You know, you're going to fail sometimes, but you can do it. Simpsons or Futurama? Oh, uh, Simpsons. Big Simpsons fan. Absolutely. Werewolves or vampires? 
Werewolves. Ghosts or existential doubt? <laughs> uh, man, uh, I'll go with... Jeez, that's tough. I feel like ghosts are more entertaining, but my everyday life is existential doubt. We'll go with ghosts. That's, that's more fun. Dragons or spaceships? Ah, uh, dragons. Not a big science fiction guy. Monsters or gangsters? Oh, monsters. Love monsters. Grew up with... When you would ask earlier, why horror? Horror for me really started with Godzilla, watching Godzilla uh, Saturday afternoons. Uh, there was a program outside of Boston called Creature Double Feature, and every Saturday they would show two monster, or two monster movies most of the time. And one of them was always a Godzilla movie, so absolutely monsters. Johnny Rotten or Yellow Biafra? Ooh, Yellow Biafra. Sorry. Sorry, UK. <laughs> truth or beauty? Ah, Truth. Paul Trembling, thank you for being on Brief New Words. Thank you, Ed. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Across the world, the real alternative. FabRadioInternational.com That was a lovely author. It was. Weren't they lovely? Absolutely. You know, this is a running gag that's not going to get old. Or maybe it is. Um, so I think we're coming to the end of the show we've come to absolutely no conclusions except for the fact that after art this is quite fun and um, science fiction is broad science fiction is broad and dystopian uh, you can always send your uh, input to us via letters, letters at starvismagazine.com or you can also uh, contact us at, at Radio Bookworm on Twitter or you can join Brave New Words Secret Book Club um, by going on to Facebook so you can find us on Tumblr as well I think we're on Instagram we're pretty much everywhere on the internet if you look for us properly. Um, I've been your host, Ed Fortune. I've been Ross. And this has been Brave New Words. See you next week. Bye. Speed Shop is a place to discuss, debate, and just waffle on about old and interesting motors, mainly, but not exclusively, of the internal combustion variety. We'll have auction reports, buyer's guides, show previews, and restoration stories to inspire, excite, and occasionally terrify. That's the Speed Shop with me, Steve Berry, here on Fab Radio International. In a galaxy far, far away, the adventures of Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Han Solo did not end with the destruction of the Death Star. Now, the Empire Strikes Back and the Star Wars saga continues with the struggle against the dark forces of evil. Read the exciting story in Sphere Paperback. Hear John Williams' magnificent score on RSO records and tapes. See The Empire Strikes Back. Certificate U.